Preface The Practice and Science of Drawing This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Oscar Beckler, Seattle, Washington. Ogbog.net The Practice and Science of Drawing by Harold Speed Preface Permit me, in the first place, to anticipate the disappointment of any student who opens this book with the idea of finding wrinkles on how to draw faces, trees, clouds, or what not. Shortcuts to excellence in drawing, nor any of the tricks so popular with the drawing masters of our grandmothers and still dearly loved by a large number of people. No good can come of such methods, for there are no shortcuts to excellence. But help of a very practical kind is the aim of the following pages to give although it may be necessary to make a greater call upon the intelligence of the student than these Victorian methods attempted. It was not until some time after having passed through the course of training in two of our chief schools of art that the author got any idea of what drawing really meant. What was taught was the faithful copying of a series of objects, beginning with the simplest forms, such as cubes, cones, cylinders, etc., an excellent system to begin with, at present in danger of some neglect after which more complicated objects in plaster of Paris were attempted, and finally copies of the human head and figure posed in suspended animation and supported by blocks, etc. Insofar as this was accurately done, all this mechanical training of eye and hand was excellent, but it was not enough. And when, with an eye trained to the closest mechanical accuracy, the author visited the galleries of the continent and studied the drawings of the old masters, it soon became apparent that either his or their ideas of drawing were all wrong, very few drawings could be found sufficiently like the model to obtain the prize at either of the great schools he had attended. Luckily, there was just enough modesty left for him to realize that, possibly, they were in some mysterious way right, and his own training in some way lacking. And so he set to work to try and climb the long uphill road that separates mechanically accurate drawing from artistically accurate drawing. Now this journey should have been commenced much earlier, and perhaps it was due to his own stupidity that it was not but it was with a vague idea of saving some students from such wrong-headedness and possibly straightening out some of the path that he accepted the invitation to write this book. In writing upon any matter of experience, such as art, the possibility of misunderstanding are enormous, and one shudders to think of the things that may be put down to one's credit, owing to such misunderstandings. It is like writing about the taste of sugar. You are only likely to be understood by those who have already experienced the flavor. By those who have not, the wildest interpretations will be put upon your words. The written word is necessarily confined to the things of the understanding because only the understanding has written language, whereas art deals with ideas of a different mental texture, which words can only vaguely suggest. However, there are a large number of people who, although they cannot be said to have experienced in a full sense any works of art, have undoubtedly the impelling desire which a little direction may lead on to fuller appreciation and it is to such that books on art are useful. So that although this book is primarily addressed to working students, it is hoped that it may be of interest to the increasing number of people who, tired with the rush and struggle of modern existence, seek refreshment in artistic things. To many such in this country, modern art is still a closed book. Its point of view is so different from that of the art they have been brought up with that they refuse to have anything to do with it. Whereas, if they only took the trouble to find out something of the point of view of the modern artist, they would discover new beauties they had little suspected. If anyone looked at a picture by Claude Monet from the point of view of a Raphael, he would see nothing but a meaningless jargon of wild paint strokes. 
and if anybody looked at Raphael from the point of view of a Claude Monet, he will, no doubt, only see hard tinny figures in a setting devoid of any of the lovely atmosphere that always envelops forms seen in nature. So wide apart are some of the points of view in painting. In the treatment of form, these differences in point of view make for enormous variety in work, so that no apology need be made for the large amount of space occupied in the following pages by what is usually dismissed as mere theory, but what is in reality the first essential of any good practice in drawing. To have a clear idea of what it is you wish to do is the first necessity of any such performance. But our exhibitions are full of works that show how seldom this is the case in art. Works showing much ingenuity and ability, but no artistic brains. Pictures that are little more than school studies, exercises in the representation of carefully or carelessly arranged objects, but cold to any artistic intention. At this time, particularly, some principles and a clear intellectual understanding of what it is you are trying to do are needed. We have no set traditions to guide us. The times when the student accepted the style and traditions of his master and blindly followed them until he found himself are gone. Such conditions belonged to an age when intercommunication was difficult and when the artistic horizon was restricted to a single town or province. Science has altered all that, and we may regret the loss of a local color and singleness of aim this growth of art in separate compartments produced, but it is unlikely that such conditions will occur again. Quick means of transit and cheap methods of reproduction have brought the art of the whole world to our doors, where formerly the artistic food at the disposal of the student was restricted to the few pictures in his vicinity and some prints of others. Now there is scarcely a picture of note in the world that is not known to the average student, either from personal inspection at our museums and loan exhibitions, or from excellent photographic reproductions. Not only European art, but the art of the East, China, and Japan is part of the formative influence by which he is surrounded, not to mention the modern science of light and color that has had such an influence on technique. It is no wonder that a period of artistic indigestion is upon us. Hence, the student has need of sound principles and a clear understanding of the science of his art, if he would select from this mass of materials those things which answer to his own inner need for artistic expression. The position of art today is like that of a river where many tributaries meeting at one point suddenly turn the steady flow to turbulence, the many streams jostling each other and the different currents pulling hither and thither. After a time, these newly met forces will adjust themselves to the altered condition, and a larger, finer stream be the result. Something analogous to this would seem to be happening in art at the present time, when all nations and all schools are acting and reacting upon each other, and art is losing its national characteristics. The hope of the future is that a larger and deeper art, answering to the altered conditions of humanity, will result. There are those who would leave this scene of struggling influences, and away up on some bare primitive mountaintop, start a new stream, begin all over again. But however necessary it may be to give the primitive mountain waters that were the start of all the streams a more prominent place in the new flow onward, it is unlikely that much can come of any attempt to leave the turbulent waters, go backwards, and start again. They can only flow onward. To speak more plainly, the complexity of modern art influences may make it necessary to call attention to the primitive principles of expression that should never be lost sight of in any work but hardly justifies the attitude of those anarchists in art who would flout the heritage of culture we possess and attempt a new start. Such attempts, however, when sincere, are interesting and may be productive of some new vitality, adding to the weight of the mainstream. But it must be along the mainstream, along lines in harmony with tradition and that the chief advance must be looked for. Although it has been felt necessary to devote much space to an attempt to find principles that may be said to be at the basis of the art of all nations, 
The executive side of the question has not been neglected, and it is hoped that the logical method for the study of drawings from the two opposite points of view of line and mass here advocated may be useful and help students to avoid some of the confusion that results from attempting simultaneously the study of these different qualities of form expression. End of preface. Recording by Oscar Beckler, Seattle, Washington. Ogbog.net.